Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek. Also, interviews with special guests and a few little surprises along the way. Well, the show's back and running, and it's actually uh, it's running a little hot. We've got so much we're working on, we're operating at beyond our peak capacity, and the chief engineer tells me we can't maintain this speed for too much longer. And he's got a bad back, and he can't do that Geordie roll under the door when the warp core goes critical. So we've got to keep it a little short this week so we can get back to it, but we've got a few quick things to talk about, so let's get underway. Let's start with the bad news first. Sadly, David Ogden Stiers has passed away at the age of 75 after a fight with cancer. Stiers was best known for his two-time Emmy-nominated role as Major Charles Emerson Winchester III in M.A.S.H., but he was a prolific actor and voice actor, voicing Cogsworth in Disney's Beauty and the Beast and Dr. Jumba Jukiba in Lilo and Stitch. He also played District Attorney Michael Reston in several Perry Mason TV films. And it's like, that's a tough card to pull when you walk into that courtroom and you see Mason as the defendant's counsel, and it's like, great, it's another L for me. I'm sure he won plenty of cases that we didn't see, but in any case, so to speak. He trained at Juilliard in the late 60s, and he got his start on Broadway before heading to Hollywood to appear in M.A.S.H., as well as appearances on The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Kojak and more. His film debut was Jack Nicholson's directing debut, Drive, he said, and get this. His voice was featured in George Lucas's directorial debut, THX 1138, which is pretty cool. But cooler than that, he was, of course, on Star Trek The Next Generation in the episode Half a Life, which has the distinction of being the only good Lexwana Troy episode. And he was great in that very poignant and elegiac story. He was also the associate conductor for the Newport Symphony Orchestra, and he guest conducted in venues all over the world, which, wow, what a full life and a talented guy who left us too soon and he will be missed. I want to do a cosplay at my next con of his character from Half a Life. And I'm going to get my girlfriend to do the the helicopter hair that Michelle Forbes has in that episode. But uh, I can't grow a beard, and she's not going to do the hair. So maybe I'll settle on a uh, Major Winchester cosplay, uh, which a quick stop at Army Surplus could take care of. But where am I going to get a French horn? I hope you enjoyed my talk last week with David R. George about duet, because I sure did. It's a rough subject matter, but it's intriguing discussion fodder. And it got me thinking about all the ways that Star Trek in all its incarnations over its 52 years, geez, 52 years of existence, uh, has used allegory to comment on real-world history, culture, and politics. Ted Cruz once said, (laughs) I don't know when, a while ago, I'm bored already too, just stick with me. Uh, He said that Kirk was a passionate working-class fighter for justice, and that Picard was an aristocratic cerebral philosopher, which means, you guessed it, that Picard is a Democrat and Kirk is a Republican. And that's why Ted Cruz isn't president and is currently fighting for the job he does have in the Texas Senate primary. Fellow Canadian William Shatner wasn't too impressed with Cruz's words himself and tweeted, Star Trek wasn't political. I'm not political. I can't even vote in the U.S., So to put a geocentric label on interstellar characters is silly. Which, isn't it, Star Trek? 
political? I mean, I, I, I agree with the co-opting and the labeling part, but are you serious? Star Trek is one of the most political shows to come out of one of the most political times in American history. And the best part about it is that Trek isn't trying really to push a political agenda outside of, I don't know, um, greed, want, and hunger, make a society something, something, so let's get rid of that. And yeah, if you want to call a society that can have all the tacos they want from a box-in-the-wall socialist, then go with your non-existent god, I guess. Trek has always been a laboratory for examining civics and society and human nature, and it only occasionally does it in an explicit way. Okay, that's that's a lie. Kirk and Spock literally dress up as SS officers in patterns of force. And yeah, I'll never miss a chance to point out that Lee Cronin, a.k.a. Gene Kuhn's script for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, is about as subtle as Django Unchained. But let's just chalk most of that down to Hodgkin's law of planetary development. The social and political allegory of Trek starts with the USS Camelot against the Russian Klingons and the communist Chinese Romulans. I think I'm still not 100% sold on those distinctions. And it continues all the way to a tyrant who wants to make the empire great again. And along the way, it makes a few other poignant stops. I mentioned the SS uniforms before, which of course are from the original series episode Patterns of Force, which is a pretty solid repudiation of fascism and Nazism in particular. And it was necessary. I mean, just a year earlier in Space Seed, Kirk and company, (laughs) they find genetically engineered Hitler floating in the void, and they start a fan club for him until he tries to take over the ship, of course. Apparently, admiration of the, quote, efficiency, end quote, of the Nazis was a thing in the 1960s because we just can't have nice things. And anyway, um, they hated Russians too, right? So this kind of comes out in Kirk saying about Khan that, uh, quote, we can be against him and admire him all at the same time, end quote. To which Spock replies, quote, illogical, end quote. And that's why he's the franchise's best character. Anyway, Patterns goes a long way to making up for that, showing just how broken a system that's based on discrimination and continual conflict, not to mention sycophantry and ravenous nationalism, is going to get, which is a good message. Sure, it's fun to shoot Nazis. I'm looking at you, Stormfront and Killing Ground. But exploring why they were so bad is, I think, the first duty of allegorical sci-fi. An episode like DS9's duet references historical events like the Nuremberg trials and the efforts of Nazi hunters like Simon Wiesenthal in finding war criminals like Adolf Eichmann. But in the classic mode of speculative fiction, Trek has often predicted where we're going to go. And I'm not just talking about having you know communicators in our pockets or, or pads, for that matter. Uh, there was a Reddit post that was getting a lot of attention this week that presented a screenshot from the DS9 episode Past Tense. That's, of course, the two-part episode where Cisco and crew are transported to San Francisco in 2024, and they have to deal with how different the world was in their past, our future. However, many San Franciscans say that the episode wasn't too far off the mark. The screenshot, which depicts a city street choked with unfortunates and makeshift shelters, looked familiar to some native Redditors, drawing comments like, Yeah, don't remove any of it, but just shove the tents and shit to the sidewalk, and you've got a picture of Soma there. Uh, Another said, Someone took that picture in a Soma alley yesterday. You can't fool me. Soma, or South of Market, is a neighborhood in San Fran. Uh, I'll put a link to the Reddit post in the show notes. So I guess parts of San Francisco aren't looking great, but it's what the episode had to say about where we'd end up if we weren't careful. That's the real story. We, of course, covered past tense last year on this show, just as President Trump was taking office, and guest Jenna and I couldn't help but see an eerie parallel from our current political climate 
to an episode of fictional television that speculated on, let's see, sanctuary zones, hostility to immigrants, wealth concentration and class division, and the breakdown of government services. Nice job, Ira Stephen Bear, I guess. Actually, Bear was inspired to write the episode at a time when L.A. was cracking down on homeless communities, which was not great, so it definitely counts as our art being influenced by life. Speaking of DS9 and of guest Jenna, incidentally, sometimes our stories of the future can literally go back to the past to make their point. Sure, there's time travel and whatnot, but I'm referring specifically to the episode Far Beyond the Stars, in which Cisco lives the life of 50s sci-fi writer Benny Russell and experiences firsthand the racism that plagues that society and still plagues our own. Far Beyond is cited by many as their favorite episode of DS9, and it's a virtuoso performance by Avery Brooks, who also directs the episode, so if you haven't seen it, do, do see it, and then come back and listen to our episode for some deeper analysis. Corruption of institutions is a commonly explored theme in sci-fi and Star Trek, so much so that we'd be here all day if I tried to mention each instance, but since Starfleet is a military organization... Kind of, but I mean, come on, it, it kind of is. Uh, Trek often explores institutional degradation through that lens. There's many examples of Cold War nuclear brinksmanship in the original series, uh, again, reference produced in the late 60s, and one of the show's best takedowns of the absurdity of mutually assured destruction and the failure of the military-industrial complex takes place in A Taste of Armageddon, where war has become so commoditized that people are willing to step into suicide booths because... Bang, I got you, you're dead. Trek has always had a complicated relationship with war because, as we learned from the philosopher Edward Starr, no relation, war is good for absolutely nothing. But we also want the fun pew-pew-pew, so Trek takes its shots at war where it can, specifically at unjust war and atrocity. And, interestingly, the way a nation treats its soldiers— the chemical manipulation of the Jem'Hadar by the Dominion in DS9 is uncomfortably reminiscent of similar practices in our own time, like the drug-addicted child soldiers in militias in Sierra Leone and the Congo. Not fun. TNG was on this one in their very first episode, in fact. Remember when Q shows up in the, uh, the snowsuit uniform and he's got the drug-sniffing tube? Better. He's referencing the humanity of World War III using drugs to enhance their combatants, which is, let's face it, a lot like the go and no-go pills we give combat servicemen. And even now our armed forces are experimenting with and issuing drugs that have already been banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Guys, remember what Tasha Yar said. Before you know it, you're taking the drug not to feel good, but to keep from feeling bad. So Trek has been the reigning champion of social allegory since it warped onto the stage, or screen, in 1966. Recently, it's um, maybe not so great. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness is about uh, terrorism, I think. Uh, but, like, maybe the terrorists have a point. Uh, but, but we can't say that. So, oh no, uh, here comes Admiral Robocop. Uh, the establishment is bad. Yeah, it's unclear. And uh, Star Trek Beyond is, I mean, it's kind of a hard darkness thing i guess but it's really all been about terrorism recently so you know it was nice to see star trek discovery go back to focusing on the strengths of a society that sticks to its positive ideals and not one that follows some ubermensch that's obsessed with the will to power huh what's that nicholas meyer is working on a con show all right that's why do i even bother if you like this kind of talk 
and you're a Trek fan, so I expect you do. It doesn't have to end here. There are a million books by people way smarter than me that look into every aspect of Trek and its exploration of social issues. Books like Star Trek Psychology, The Mental Frontier, or Star Trek in History from the Wiley Pop Culture and History series, or Why Not? Treknology, The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive by Ethan Siegel. All of these books are available on Amazon, and you can get there by clicking our Amazon banner on enterprisingindividuals.com. Heck, you can even bookmark it. You should know how this works by now, but here's a refresher. When you click on that banner to get to Amazon and you buy a Star Trek book, um, a red shirt, uh, some triple feed, whatever, we get a little bit of that at no extra cost to you. That's right. We get, um, uh, there's no money in the 24th century, so let's see, uh, we get a few more uh, dilithium crystals, yeah, uh, to keep our warp drive humming and my chief engineer happy, bad back, you know. So we would really love it if you did that. If you're headed to Amazon, click through Enterprising Individuals and help support the show. And maybe you're saying, look, Cap, I've got all the mutated Tom Paris figures I need right now. My spouse is about to leave me as it is. I can't buy anything from Amazon today. Have no fear. You can still support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly donation, and you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content like our live shows and my DS9 rewatch recaps, plus show merchandise and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Speaking of live shows, this might be a little bit of chicken counting, and I don't want to jinx it, but we will be doing another live show at Convergence Con this year in Minneapolis. Last year, we talked about The Wrath of Khan, and that was fun. But this year, it's something a little different. We'll be talking about the Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, one of the best, if not the best, episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, and one that would have fit perfectly up there in my historical references. I forgot to put it up there. Um, Dred Scott, anyone? Uh, here's the best part, though. The writer of the episode, Melinda Snodgrass, is scheduled to be on the panel for that live show. Again, try not to jinx myself. I don't want to overpromise and then underdeliver. Uh, God forbid anything should happen, but I've already talked to her, and we've got a great collection of other guests for the panel. So that's going to be something that you don't want to miss, and you can get it by going to patreon.com forward slash EIST pod, and for as little as $1 a month, you can become a member of the show. Tote bags are being kicked around as an idea. You want a tote bag? I will get you a tote bag. Become a member of the crew today. And as always, anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Our top comment this week on social media is more of an exchange, really, than a singular comment, but it comes from listener Ann Bean. She's on Twitter at Ann, that's Ann with an E, Ann Bean Tweets. Anne was one-fifth of the Late Lamented Trade Secrets podcast, but she also heads up Emerald Comics Distro, which provides distribution of indie comics and small presses in the Seattle and Portland area. She's someone who's passionate about the things she loves, and she's always going full speed. So you can check out more about Emerald at emeraldcomicsdistro.com. Anne's currently in the midst of a next-gen rewatch, and she's live-blogging her reactions, so you can catch her reactions to first-season TNG episodes on Twitter. And I've been... Um, politely, I hope, <laughs> pointing her and other users in the directions of the episodes of our show that uh, have covered those episodes. Uh, and let's face it, when you're in the first season of TNG, you need all the support that you can get. <laughs> so thanks, Anne, for staying in touch and for being a fan. For your comments, you win a crocheted Klingon forehead cap.
I mean, that's an amazing idea, right? I mean, you put it on, you've got a bumpy, fuzzy Klingon head. That has to exist, right? And if it doesn't, you'll never hear this show, because I'll be at the patent office. Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or find us at EISTpod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at EISTpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. Speaking of Khan, his are the pecs that launched a thousand fakes. He's been called Trek's greatest villain. That is when he's not called Khan. He looks fantastic in a mesh lame jumpsuit, but it all had to start somewhere. Professors Maria and John Tenuto join me on our next show to talk about the episode that introduced us to the 20th century's most admirable genetically engineered supervillain. Admirable. Admirable. It's Space Seed, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban, signing off and saying, live long and prosper. If the tequila brand Patron created a Patreon, it would be Patron's Patreon, and then their patrons would be the patrons of the Patron Patreon. They'd be Patron Patreon patrons.